Well, beloved listeners, I've lost count of my many, many trips to Egypt, but I do recall one with affection. I made a, uh, a documentary film called Death and Destiny on a particularly significant uh, Egyptian dig. But despite all my uh, many trips, I'd never heard of the woman we're about to discuss, something of a real-life Indiana Jones, Christiane Desroches Noblecourt. In addition to being a pioneering French archaeologist at a time when there were very few women in the field, she spearheaded a crusade in the 1960s to save some of Egypt's most precious antiquities from certain destruction. Here to tell her story is Lynn Olson. Lynn's a uh, a best-selling author of nine history books. Her latest is Empress of the Nile, the daredevil archaeologist who saved Egypt's ancient temples from destruction. Lynn, thanks for joining me. All over the world, from uh, St Peter's Square to, to, would you believe, Adelaide and Sydney, there are ancient Egyptian obelisks. I understand... Christiane was inspired by her encounter with one of them. That's absolutely right. And thank you so much for having me, Philip, tonight. Um, Christiane developed her love for ancient Egypt when she was a toddler, when she was a little tiny girl uh, growing up in Paris. Her grandfather put her on his shoulders and took her to see the obelisk of Luxor in the Place de la Concorde in, in, in Paris. And she fell in love with it. You know, she didn't care about its history. She didn't didn't care that it was 3,000 years old. She just loved the hieroglyphs uh, on the, uh, you know, the little uh, the carvings of the animals and the birds that were on the obelisk. And from that time, she just, she just became um, a devotee of, of ancient Egypt. That, that, that grew when, when uh, King Tut's, Tomb was discovered in 1922. She was nine years old, and, the, and that just sealed the deal for her. She just, uh, you know, she was devoted to ancient Egypt from that moment on. I liked the way when she'd uh, look at the antiquities in the Louvre, she was much more impressed with the Egyptians than those uh, Johnny-come-latelys, the Greek and the Romans. Uh, yeah, that's one of the stories I love the most. And and if you see the, she she talked a lot about this wonderful ancient uh, statue, the seated scholar. Um, and I I haven't seen it at the Louvre, but I've seen wonderful pictures of it. And it's of a man that looks like he's alive. And and she talked about you know when she would walk through the Louvre and, and she felt his her, his eyes on her. And um, it, you know, it, there was no comparison for her to that and, and the Venus de Milo, who she said, you know, was an empty, you know, mar- a beautiful marble statue, but had no personality at all. She was fortunate in her choice of parents. They were both quite progressive at the time. Oh, amazingly progressive. She, you know, she was born really just after the turn of the century. And, you know, young French girls from upper middle class backgrounds, most of them didn't have parents like her. They were very liberal. They were very uh, 
international. They had lots of friends from other countries. Uh, and they also believed that their daughter should have the same kind of opportunities that their son did. And, and they both her, her father and her mother raised her to believe that she could do anything she wanted, which was, you know, incredibly unusual in France at that time. And she was a very energetic, intelligent, enthusiastic young girl. And she just took that permission that they gave her and ran with it. And nothing would uh, stop her becoming an Egyptologist. An interesting choice because archaeology was overwhelmingly macho, wasn't it, at the time? Oh, my Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> you know, it, not only in France. I mean, France was one of the major centers of archaeology, uh, as was Britain. Um, but everywhere, no. I mean, there were there were no women really in in the profession that much. It was a very closed old boys club, um, and so she she had to really fight. Uh, from the beginning of her career. But um, she won she, the fights and she became she a project manager in the Department of Egyptian Antiquities at the Louvre at the age of 21. Yes, that, that was incredible. She was really, well, she was the only woman in, in the uh, Egyptian Antiquities Department. Um, and and she fought her way through. I mean, she, she, const she would never let a man tell her what to do. Um, and that's that's the thing that that all the way through her life, the reason she was able to accomplish so much is because of that that trait, <laughs> that characteristic. I didn't realize that she was just over five feet tall. Easy to bully? No way. <laughs> You're right. I mean, I love. I mean, there are a number of stories in this book where she is confronted not only by one bully, but many bullies, whether they're the Gestapo, whether they're her fellow colleagues, and they're all much taller than she. But she, right from the beginning, I mean, from her upbringing, she, she also went to a very, very enlightened high school for girls in, in Paris. So right from the beginning, she was not willing to be told what to do. And and that, you know, whether it was de Gaulle, I mean, she she went up against de Gaulle, she went up against the Gestapo, <laughs> she refused to let any man do that. To well, her. she was five foot tall, de Gaulle was 10 feet tall, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> having, having been on many digs or observing many digs, I've noticed that archaeologists often treat their, uh, the Egyptians with whom they work, well, with a certain degree of uh, contempt. She took a very different approach. She did, and, and, and that's really interesting. Right from the beginning of her career, I mean, her first experience in Egypt was in the Valley of the Kings, working with two of the two great um, French archaeologists. That, that They were her mentors, and, and both of them were very much working with the Egyptians. They, they, they weren't, um, you know, supercilious. They weren't uh, telling them what to do. And Christiane, from the beginning of her career, worked with the Egyptian laborers. I mean, they, she didn't um, she didn't act like their their boss. I mean, and she she really tried to understand the Egyptian point of view right from the beginning. She learned Arabic, which was very unusual for a Western archaeologist at that time. And even now, I think, to some extent. 
she used to be the the medical officer. I mean, right from the beginning of her career, she she took care of the laborers. She nursed them, you know, when they, when they were hurt or whatever. So she had this incredible relationship with Egyptians that very very few of her male colleagues had. Five foot nothing, she confronts the might of Germany. As the Germans approach, she's got to get a lot of stuff to safety. Right. That, that, that was kind of, you know, she had started her career as an Egyptologist. She was in Egypt and then the war broke out. Um, and when when Germany invaded France, the Louvre, thanks to its its wonderful director, Jacques Jajard, evacuated all of its major treasures, all of its major artwork and antiquities to chateaux in 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 the uh, Loire Valley to get them away from the Germans, and she was part of that. She had to pack up the Egyptian antiquities from the Louvre and 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 kind of oversee their transportation to these chateaux in these convoys. And you know, again, you know, she's in her twenties. She's five foot tall, as as you say, and and she's in charge of all this, and she does it. Um, you know, and and then. After doing that, then she becomes involved in the resistance, um, you know, in, in France. I'm talking to Lynn Olson about her Empress of the Nile, Christiane Desroches-Noblecourt. OK, she gets involved in the resistance. She does, yes. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a great story. You know, she's working at the Louvre. She's, she's a curator at the Louvre, and so she's working at the Louvre during the weekdays and then at night and on the weekends, she's involved in the resistance and risking her life to, you know, defy the Germans. Um, and here, you know, again, she comes up against the Germans. Uh, she's arrested by the Gestapo at some point when she is she is an actual spy. I mean, she's carrying intelligence and they they catch her and, uh, you know, she just stands up to them, too. She just basically says. You know, I'm not going to go along with what you're doing. <laughs> Lynn, she also found time for a personal life. She got married during the war. She did. That it, It's really unusual. She never liked to talk about her personal life, ever, by all accounts. Um, but she did uh, meet, uh, actually, she had known him for some time. He was a friend of her brother's, a young engineer named Andre Nobelkor. And he courted her during the war, and and she did get married to him, but she said she wouldn't live with him because she was <laughs> in the resistance, and that was dangerous, and she didn't want him to, you know, to um, be arrested along with her. So, so they didn't live together until right before the war ended, and then she decided, well, maybe I'll have a child, but it's going to be when I want a child. So her whole life, her personal life, was revolved around her passion for Egypt. So she stays married for 57 years. I have to ask yes. you, did she start her own dynasty? Did she start her own dynasty? Um, yes, she did. She had one child. Um, but from all accounts, never really paid much attention to him. Um, <laughs> and, you know, initially she did. She didn't want to go back to Egypt because he was he was small. But but eventually she was persuaded that it was important for her to, to go um, and so from then on, she really focused on her career in Egypt. She had told her her husband before they got married that he had to agree that, you know, her her career came first, you know, which was incredibly unusual for a, a woman to do that. It's still incredibly unusual for a woman to do that now. But back then, 
uh, and he accepted it. And uh, and I think that's probably why they stayed married for 57 years. Let's move on to NASA's proposal for the Aswan High Dam and the catastrophic consequences it was projected to have. Yeah, after the war, Nasser, the, the, Colonel Nasser and his group of officers took control, you know, basically staged a coup in 1952 um, and, and ousted the British. The British had really been in control of Egypt for more than a century at that point. Um, Good on him. They deserved to be kicked out. Absolutely. And, of course, the Aswan was one of his vision splendid. Yes. He he decided that that he was going to build uh, the world's biggest dam to provide enough electricity um, for Egyptians' exploding population uh, after he took over control. And, And that was great. That was wonderful, except that in doing that, he was going to uh, the dam was going to destroy uh, more than 20 of Egypt's most uh, priceless temples. And, um, it, you know, the Egyptians didn't like the fact that they were going to lose their temples, but they didn't think that there was anything they could do about it, that the, fu- the future was was more important than the past. And Christiane, who who was working as a consultant in Egypt then, said, no, you can't do that. You, 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 you can't let these temples be destroyed. And so she led this incredible one, initially one woman crusade, um, to save these temples when everybody said that's impossible, you know, that the A, you can't do it, you know, technologically, and B, nobody's going to pay the money that you need to raise to, to do it. But she was absolutely determined um, that she was going to try. And uh, in, in, in the end, she won. I must say to, to visit those sites now is absolutely awe-inspiring, not only for their magnitude and grandeur, but for the fact that it was achieved. Uh, Oh, absolutely. No. Uh, You know, achieved on so many levels. Achieved initially and then you know for them to be able to to save them. It's it's, it's just extraordinary. And it's it's fascinating that um, basically there was just general agreement that this could not be done, just could not be done. And through the force of her will, she managed to persuade enough people to, and organizations, UNESCO being one of them, to join in this crusade. And she she pulled off the impossible. Well, one of the reasons she pulled it off was because she found a, a friend in the White House, didn't she, in, in Jackie? She did. She did. Um, that that was that was one of the the most fun parts of writing this book. I had no idea uh, there there were two women actually involved that played crucial roles in saving these temples. One obviously was Christiane. The other one was Jacqueline Kennedy, um, and I had no idea of that. I had never heard of of that. But Jackie Kennedy, uh, her husband John Kennedy, had just been elected president in 1960. Um, and he he obviously took office in 1961 and replaced Dwight Eisenhower, who was absolutely against um, saving these temples and, and you know would not put up any American money to save the temples. Jackie Kennedy got very, very involved in this crusade and persuaded her husband to go to Congress and to provide enough money 
to to rescue Abu Simbel. Without American aid, uh, Abu Simbel would be at the bottom of a you know a giant reservoir now. Um, American aid was absolutely crucial, and uh, the Kennedys were responsible for coming up with that money. You describe it as the greatest single example of cultural cooperation the world has ever known. In the 2,000 engineers, archaeologists, architects, surveyors, craftsmen and labourers from more than a dozen countries came together. I mean, that is simply breathtaking. And none of this would have been possible without Christiane. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, obviously, there were, you know, as you just said, thousands of people, but none of it would have gotten, they would not have been there without her if she had not had that absolute determination to see this through. I mean, the Egyptians were ready to let those those temples be destroyed. Nobody else really cared. and she, But she just kept going and going and going, you know, and persuading everybody, Nasser, um, you know, De Gaulle, everybody. That, that you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. And and uh, she managed to pull it off. She also uh, played a role in regard to uh, Tutankhamun, didn't she? She did. Um, actually, in a way, Christiane was responsible in a more than small way for the Tut craze that, that occurred in the 1960s and 1970s. As a thank you gift to France and to Christiane, uh, for what they did to save the temples, uh, Nasser ordered, uh, you know, an exhibition of a large exhibition of Tut's treasures to go to the Louvre in 1967, and Christiane curated it. That was the first major exhibition of the Tutankhamun treasures outside Egypt. Period, and and it wasn't thanks to for what the for what she had done. And it, it, it took Paris by storm. It took France by storm. It was it was just an enormous success. And from that exhibit, um, then the Tut treasures traveled all over the world, from you know to uh, the Soviet Union, to to the UK, to the United States. And again, you know, this is this is the beginning of Tut mania. This is this was really the beginning of major. Uh, museum exhibitions, and, and it really revolutionized museums, uh, certainly in the United States, and I think in, in other parts of the world. And and again, she was kind of the uh, the you know the the seabed. I mean, she 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 started it all because because of what she had done for um, the temples in Egypt. I think there should be an obelisk raised to her in the centre of Paris <laughs> immediately. I totally agree. Immediately, if not sooner. Lynn, thank you. My guest has been Lynn Olson, a New York Times bestselling author of nine books of history. We've been chatting about her latest, Empress of the Nile, the daredevil woman archaeologist who saved Egypt's ancient temples from extinction, just published by Scribe. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.